You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ukraine prepares for elections this weekend, and they'll be head in the midst of intense Russian information operations. Estonia's experience with such interference may hold lessons. A Magneto vulnerability just patched could compromise pay cards on e-commerce sites. Huawei reports record profits and comes in for sharp British criticism over slipshod engineering. Prisoners in Finland will be helping train AI. I chat with Lori Craner. She's director of Carnegie Mellon University's Scilab Security and Privacy Institute. And security companies hungry for talent should take note of tech layoffs in the larger IT sector. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, March 29, 2019. Happy Friday, everybody. The first round of Ukraine's presidential election will be held this weekend, with a runoff, should one prove necessary, scheduled for April 21st. Ukrainian elections have been subject to Russian influence operations for years, most notably in 2014, and direct hacking has also been a matter of concern. The Ukrainian Election Task Force, a monitoring group, seems cautiously optimistic that the vote will go off as planned and will result in a credible outcome. The task force notes that, unlike some other neighboring countries they might mention, voting in Ukraine actually matters. They also note that Russian influence campaigns have been focused on the election for some time. Moscow's general line has been that Ukraine is a violent, dangerous, radicalized place where groups of government-inspired thugs, bandits, will beat you, assault your wives and daughters, and burn down your house should you show up at the polls with the wrong candidates in mind. But such is the actual commentary from Russian government-controlled television shows on Russia One TV. The Russian radio and television are widely consumed in Ukraine, where most speak Russian, and where the closely related languages are for the most part mutually intelligible anyway. Russian information operators have been active online as well. According to the New York Times, one new tactic designed to circumvent social networks' efforts to cull inauthentic accounts has involved paying Ukrainian citizens to allow Moscow's trolls access to their legitimate Facebook accounts. The Estonian experience with Russian attempts to meddle in elections is being cited as an example by stories published in Quartz and elsewhere. 
The Estonian response has been complex, but in outline, it involved wider adoption of technical defenses against hacking, assistance to political parties and candidates with network and account security, anti-bot sweeps, and finally, public education in media literacy designed to induce skepticism and resistance in the face of disinformation. Security firm Sukuri has a proof-of-concept exploit for an SQL injection vulnerability in the core of the widely used Magneto e-commerce platform. They disclosed it privately to Magneto, which has prepared a patch. Access can be gained without the need for authentication, the researchers say. The risk to consumers is card skimming. As Ars Technica points out, the vulnerability is so potentially lucrative that criminals can be expected to exploit it in the wild as soon as they have the means to do so. About 300,000 e-commerce sites use Magneto, and all users are advised to apply the fix Magneto has issued. ZDNet reported earlier this week that some criminals were apparently using a weakness in the PayPal PayFlow Pro integration with Magneto to test stolen cards for validity. Much pay card data traded in the criminal markets are unsurprisingly outdated or simply hoaxed up, so the hoods will do a bit of testing. Magneto urges businesses to upgrade, lest they lose their PayPal access. Huawei, bellwether of China's tech sector, continues to receive a mixed reception abroad. The company is defending its security record as it reports annual sales of $100 billion. The EU has finessed security concerns about the company's participation in 5G networks. Australia and the U.S. are unrepentant in their wish to keep Huawei out of their own networks. And the U.K. has harshly criticized the company's failure to remediate security issues. The register characterizes Huawei's efforts to address known router vulnerabilities as half-arsed. This is an industry term, should you be unfamiliar with it. It means roughly poorly prepared and badly executed, and it often connotes both indifference and lack of effort. Wired expresses the current mood about risks surrounding the company's products as a feeling that it's not the back doors, but the bugs that matter. We heard similar sentiments expressed last week at the Three Cs-focused CyberSec DC conference last week. And finally, correctional authorities in Finland have an idea for training artificial intelligence. Have prisoners answer questions and use their answers to make the AI smarter. The country's criminal sanctions agency has contracted with AI firm Vainu to provide the inmates' labor to the project. It's seen as a win-win-win. The jailers keep their charges busily on the road to rehabilitation, the prisoners get learning and self-improvement, and the machines get smarter. Or at least, street smarter. It's an alternative to the manufacture of automobile license plates that former guests of governors tell us is the traditional occupation given to those whom the courts have offered a period of reflection. But a lot of other stuff has been made in prisons, too. Packaging for various consumer products, processed meat, belts, and handcuff cases for police forces. Even for a time in the 1990s, lingerie. Our corrections desk tells us they once knew a guy who taught a university extension course in ethics to a student body composed of long-term residents of a Midwestern penitentiary. His account of class discussions and consultations during office hours suggests that some of the models the AI will receive may be, shall we say, unrepresentative of the norms of natural intelligence. Anywho, the folks doing a nickel or so in Helsinki will look at the Internet and answer questions like, does this article talk about a business acquisition? 
The same question would be posed to a large number of inmates, and their answers in the aggregate will be used to converge on a right answer to help train the artificial intelligence to do a better approximation of natural intelligence. We might suggest other questions perhaps suited to areas of local expertise because, after all, learning is learning. Consider, is this guy an undercover narc? Does Charlie have a shank on him? Is bologna on the menu today? We note that the sample question is basically a true-false one with a binary solution set. Could AI also be trained using more complicated multiple-choice questions? Perhaps even nested sequential questions? Consider, is this a convenience store? If it is a convenience store, that's a place where you can A. Buy smokes B. Shoplift smokes C. Jackpot the ATM D. All of the above Stuff like that. If we may end on a more serious note, we've seen stories this week about layoffs on both U.S. coasts. Salesforce, Oracle, and PayPal are all downsizing their workforces. A lot of people with transferable skills are going to be searching for work, and the security industry around both San Jose and Baltimore might do well to give them a look. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's always great to have you back. Um, I saw an interesting story from Columbia Journalism Review, and this is about uh, law enforcement organizations using encryption 
on their radio communications. And some folks uh, not very pleased with that. What's going on here? Yeah, so Dave, you and I uh, are located in a pretty high crime city, unfortunately, in Baltimore. And uh, the way most reporters in Baltimore get news of uh, impending crimes or crimes already in progress is by listening to uh, police radio, the police scanner. Mm -hmm. This is uh, free open source uh, for most uh, police departments. Generally, you can access it online or through various apps. And it's a key tool for journalists because, you know, if they are listening to the scanner, they'll hear about the initial response to an incident and they themselves can get out to uh, provide transparency as to exactly what's happening. What we see now, what's mentioned in this article is that uh, a bunch of different law enforcement agencies across the country, this was uh, an article about law enforcement agencies in Colorado, are encrypting those radio communications. And that means journalists cannot access them. Now, there are legitimate reasons to want to encrypt these communications. It could uh, provide a tactical advantage for officers to not have the public be able to uh, figure out where certain police officers are going to be deployed. I think that is a very legitimate concern. But there is uh, a First Amendment problem as well. Journalists aren't able to provide transparency, accurately cover uh, crimes and um, other police-involved activity if they're not able to access these scanners. So I think it's it's uh, a problem that's going to present itself as uh, increasingly as more police departments use this encryption device. I mean, from their uh, perspective, you can certainly understand why they'd want to keep these communications private, unavailable to the public, especially if criminals themselves are reacting to what they hear on police scanners. But it would be a major blow to journalism and to transparency to have this tool removed. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting, too, because uh, one of the aspects that they point out here is the privacy of victims of crimes who very often will have their names and, and personal information read out over these radios by necessity for the police or uh, uh, first responders. Um, So there's that privacy component of it as well. Yeah, and certainly that's a very compelling privacy interest. I think it's incumbent upon media organizations to work directly with police departments so that they can monitor the scanner and have informal or formal agreements in place not to release personal information. And just anecdotally, I mean, I follow a lot of different crime reporters here in Baltimore. All of them seem very responsible about um, not revealing the identity of victims or perpetrators and um, being somewhat circumspect about identifying location and not asserting something as true without it being confirmed by a source beyond the police scanner. And I think there's you know, generally a good practice among Uh, larger mainstream media outlets to treat the police scanner as sort of a rough sketch of what's happening. There are a lot of false reports. Uh, There are a lot of false leads. Um, So I think the future uh, solution to this problem is to have journalists work closely with police departments to protect that personal information while still giving them access to real-time crime updates uh, to make sure that the public is is properly made aware of what's going on in their community. Um, and, you know, as an extension, I think it is potentially dangerous to permanently encrypt those communications as a matter of policy, because uh, that's a drastic solution to this uh, problem of revealing individual private information. Is there any legislation that uh, that swings either way on this, either requiring that 
law enforcement agencies keep these communications in the clear or or uh, specifically allowing them to encrypt? The one piece of legislation that is cited is just a proposed piece of legislation. Uh, that is by a representative in the state of Colorado, a Republican representative who has introduced a House bill to prohibit law enforcement agencies from using encryption. He says that the use of encryption should not be ritualistic, um, but should be only used in extraordinary circumstances. So far, that bill has not been uh, enacted. That legislator proposed it in the last session of the Colorado State Legislature. It was bottled up in committee. Um, you know, and I think there is a tendency to give deference to law enforcement, particularly when it comes to these tactical issues. Uh, and I think, obviously, they have a large sway over state legislators. You know, I don't see a quick legislative fix to this issue of encrypting police radio communications. Hmm. All right. Well, it's one we'll keep an eye on. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Lori Craner. She's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in computer science and engineering and public policy and director of their Scilab Security and Privacy Institute. Earlier in her career, she served as chief technologist at the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, was co-founder of Wombat Security, and served on the board of directors for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She joined us from Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. We have uh, lots of security and privacy work uh, across departments, and you know each department runs its own programs, hires its own faculty. Uh, but we formed Scilab because we wanted to have a way of coordinating all these efforts and bringing people together to collaborate. And so uh, through Scilab, we're able to coordinate. We also have some uh, larger collaborative research efforts that involve people across multiple departments. And we have some collaborative space. And so we have people all sitting together from engineering and computer science, um, all sitting side by side uh, in the Scilab space. And so what's the uh, the focus on uh, security and privacy? Why is that an important area for Carnegie Mellon to make this sort of investment? Well, security and privacy are uh, increasingly important as more and more things um, go online and our world is in- increasingly digital. It, it, protecting security is, is critical uh, for our, our infrastructure, um, for everything. Uh, privacy is also something which I think has uh, become increasingly important, both because there are more privacy threats out there now, but also there's more um, privacy regulation and, uh, and needs to, com- to comply with uh, privacy laws. And so there's a lot of research needed into what are the best ways to protect security and privacy. Uh, so this is, this is a really uh, important area for research, 
there's also a big need to hire people in these areas. And so Carnegie Mellon is uh, doing our best to produce lots of excellently qualified graduates who can go out into uh, the security and privacy workforce. Yeah, and it's my understanding that that a particular area of success for Carnegie Mellon has been uh, encouraging women and uh, minorities, people of color, uh, to participate in the programs. You've seen some really uh, some some numbers that you can be proud of. Yeah, we've been working really hard to uh, improve the diversity of our computer science and engineering programs more generally, uh, as well as in the security and privacy area. So our undergraduate computer science program is now 50-50 women and men, which which is uh, really amazing and has come a long way. And and so what's your take on uh, the notion that we have uh, this shortage of qualified people in the security industry? Um, so, so it seems that we, we do need to educate more people in this area. Um, and the number of women and minorities in the security area is, is just ridiculously low. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's, it's much lower than computer science in general. Um, I, I just got back from the RSA conference and, you know, you look around and you just don't see that many women there. Uh, so, you know, we're missing out on an opportunity. You know, half of our population is not really considering this as a career choice. Uh, so that seems like you know, kind of an obvious place to go to try to increase our ranks. And, and does that outreach uh, extend back to uh, high schools and middle schools trying to create that pipeline into universities like yours? Absolutely. I, I think uh, people are ruling out certain careers, you know, in elementary school and uh, middle school. And so if we can uh, spark that interest among middle schoolers, uh, we have a much better chance of convincing them to enroll in technical programs later on. And so um, there, there are many great efforts trying to encourage uh, young uh, girls and, uh, and people of color at uh, th- those lower age levels. Um, at Carnegie Mellon, we, we have a tech nights for girls every Monday night for middle school girls in the area. Uh, we're also running this cybersecurity challenge uh, for uh, middle school and high schoolers called Pico CTF. And we, we have thousands of students around the world are participating in this program. What's your advice to folks out there who want to encourage uh, young women and, and people of color uh, to pursue these sorts of careers in security. Um, what sorts of things can they do to make that an, uh, an easier pathway for them? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, p- part of it is is to have uh, mentoring and role models and uh, help women and people of color see themselves in these uh, types of careers by seeing you know, examples that there, there are uh, diverse people in these careers. Uh, we also need to make sure that we take down barriers um, and remove some of the hostility that there's been in the past. Uh, you know, I've been to security conferences where it, it was hostile to, be, to, to women there, where I, I definitely felt um, very uncomfortable being in those situations. Uh, and that, that was a few years ago. And, you know, the good news is that I think things are changing, um, that I, I think, you know, when I when I go to security conferences now, I do feel a lot more comfortable there. And I think a lot of efforts are made to make sure that these are more inclusive environments. Um, but we still have a ways to go.
So at Carnegie Mellon, we have uh, a master's program in privacy engineering, and this is actually the only program like this anywhere in the world um, where we're actually educating technical students to take on privacy engineering roles, which are becoming increasingly common at companies, uh, especially in light of GDPR. And then the other thing I wanted to mention uh, was in the Carnegie Mellon, we have a big um, focus on the human side of security and privacy. We have a course on usable privacy and security, and we have a lot of research which uh, combines the, the core technology of security and privacy with the uh, social science and psychology and human side of security and privacy, which is uh, really important. That's Lori Craner. She's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in computer science and engineering and public policy, and she's director of their Scilab Security and Privacy Institute. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.